0: This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, January the 18th. This is episode 3432 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's a Thursday, like most Thursdays, we are kind of back to regularly scheduled programming, finally. And uh, it is an expert counsel Q&A show for the week, and I've got a bunch of stuff for you. In the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, Dr. Paul and Damick Adams say, did Biden fall right into the Houthis' hands? Let's hear what they have to say about that. And then Chris Rossini says, Congress must stand up to these wars. I haven't listened to this segment yet. I have a feeling there might be a claim made here that I disagree with, not the sentiment of, but the technical legalities of. But we'll wait to see, and I'll have some follow-up on it. What about planting and building guilds that can deal with the alleopathy of black walnut? Jeff gives a, Jeff is going to give you a great answer on this. I have a quite a bit to add, because this is one of the most overreacted things on planet Earth. The substance that we're talking about when it comes to black walnut... Uh, butternut, pecan, and a few other things is known as juglone. The juglonus species, like it's some kind of evil thing. There is allopathy in juglone. It is not the concern most people think. Now, what I find interesting, though, is there are plants that are extremely tolerant to the point of basically they don't even care. You could plant them in a, in a, in a bucket with, mulched with black walnut husks and they would still grow. And one that Jeff mentions is exactly one of those plants and it's a pretty good plant for food production and it just has to do with where certain species evolved and where they grew next to each other in natural hardwood forests next up today john pagliano will talk to you about stock market seasonality we're going to hear from nick ferguson if you have a very small property you need to move stuff around you want to use fodder to feed bunnies But you really don't have room to put them in the ground. Can you grow fodder in pots? Turns out you can. Joel Riles. Wait, is he on the expert council? Well, we shall see. I'd love to have him. All I need is enough questions about dogos. That's doggies. And uh, if you have enough dog questions to support Joel as a member, I will bring him on officially. He's a great friend. I love him. I've had him on the show many times. Very smart guy. And he's going to talk today about crate training a puppy that has some nighttime potty issues. And I don't know what he's going to say either because I ain't listened to this yet, but I bet you my instinct and his instinct is very similar on this one. Ben Falk will, real quick, talk about why you should always vent stoves out the back rather than up through the top. Especially if you have the option, one way or another. It's a very short answer, but it, it, somebody heard him say that in the interview I just recently did with him, and we didn't dig into why. And uh, so he'll clarify that for you. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna I know, I know some. Of you, I don't hear about Bitcoin, Jack. Well, it's money. It's the best money in the world, and money's a survival topic. So you're gonna listen. And I got a unique way to bring it to you today. I'm gonna tell you the reason you should own Bitcoin that no one ever talks about. And we're going to talk about something in the very beginning of that for like 30 seconds that is something that's been talked about a lot. Environmentalism. Bitcoin's boiling the oceans and all. And we won't spend much time on because that's been hashed out, but it led me to a question. And that question very quickly led me to an answer, and I thought, wow, this is a, this is a reason that everybody should own Bitcoin. And it'll make sense when we get to it. Before we do, I want to let you know something. Nick Ferguson, who who will be on the air with us today, has his annual plant sale going right now. Now he does. He's not shipping yet. He's taking orders, but he has some really cool stuff. I'll let him tell you about it. But you definitely want to check out Rare Plant Store, uh, and, and we're gonna be we'll, we'll be talking a little bit more about some of the cool stuff that he has available uh, in the coming week as well. Uh, But it's time to get your orders in, because if you want to order this stuff from Nick, let me tell you something. The man sells out of these products every year, every single year. I think it's his fifth year doing this now, running this this spring sale, and I don't think he's ever not sold out. So he's got plenty of room for orders right now, for now. So listen up when he comes on. And then my pitch to you today is for our bioreactor composting course. You really got to check this out. Uh so many of you are out there telling me you're trying to grow some of your own food in your own backyard and some of its perennial stuff, some of its annual gardens some as pasture improvement. This course will help you and it's very inexpensive it's forty bucks it's eight hours of instruction with exams and certification and all By the way, somebody emailed me and said, "Hey, do I have to take the test do i have to i don't care about the certification you don't have to do anything it's yours." Right? You can go buy a gun and never shoot it. You can put it in the cabinet and never buy ammo for it if you want. It's yours. It's more fun and more practical if you take it out and do something with it. But you do what you want. Uh, no one's going to give you a hard time or anything about it. But I will say this. If you take the course, you're paying for it. You might as well take the tests. And there's some things coming that it would be beneficial if you did. I'll just say. Uh, and I'll also tell you that I have designed this course... In a way that the the exams are not about me determining whether you're smart enough to have passed. The exams are designed so that they help you understand how much you've learned, where you're struggling, and they're part of the learning process. So, uh, some of them are a little bit tricky. Questions are not that hard. They're not LSAT hard or uh, you know uh, medical board hard or something like that. But there's you know so it requires a little bit more thought than just oh this one says two answers so it must be the right. It ain't like that. But I really believe if you're taking the exams, you're going to get more out of the course. And it doesn't take real long to go through and they're all multiple choice. But definitely consider the Bioreactor Composting course. If you're an MSB member, remember you have 5 bucks off, which is like 13% off the price. And, uh, and so if you're not MSB, that's 5 bucks of it right there. So think about becoming an MSB member if you're not one already as well. that, Let's hear from Dr. Paul in the Liberty Highlights. And here we go.
1: Let's take a look at the airstrikes over the weekend, if we can start with that first clip. I just grabbed this at random. Houthis vowed strong response after second round of US-UK strikes on Yemen. Uh, They hit, I think, six or seven targets on Thursday night, came back on Friday and hit the airport in Sanaa. And uh, I guess France has joined in as well. Uh, The Houthis have been, as our viewers probably know, have essentially shut down shipping traffic in the Red Sea because they have vowed to block any ships that go into or out of Israeli ports because they support the Palestinians and they're opposed to what's going on in Gaza and so they have the, uh, the geographic ability because of the unique geography of the region they're at a real chokehold point, I should have put up a map, to where they can affect that. They believe that they will de-escalate in the region by attacking the houthis when in fact many people argue that that's exactly what the houthis wanted they wanted the u.s to attack because they don't have a military base they don't have a pentagon there in sana where you can hit they have caves they have tunnels they have weapons that are smuggled in uh, they have a, a, a capacity of shutting down that strait they gave the houthis exactly what they wanted which is to turn them into a mayor, major player And the only country that has really stepped up physically to challenge the Israeli attack on Gaza. We're participants. We promote this because that's the job of an empire. And that's why I do not think uh, the
2: American empire has anything to do with protecting personal liberty and making us a better
1: country. There are two choices left for Biden. He can say, well, that didn't work. You know, too bad. (laughs) Or he can escalate. And that's exactly what the Israelis want, of course. Because they, and we'll talk about this later, they want to make this America's war. But it's also what the Houthis want. There was pretty much worldwide sympathy for Israel. I mean, they were attacked. They lost a number of citizens. Now, not as many as they claim probably a few hundred. But there was worldwide condemnation of the Hamas attacks. And that quickly turned to horror when you had, yes, a few hundred maybe, israeli civilians killed in the attack and people were horrified when the retaliation was twenty five thousand civilians in gaza and so they had the sympathy of the world they squandered it with this wildly disproportionate retaliation and now we're here we here we are in the situation
3: it's very disappointing watching what our government does it is completely unconstitutional Uh, And it's, it's so important. Our founders, you know, they got a lot of things right. One of them is why Congress has to declare war. And the obvious reason is because nothing that the government does affects us more than war, more painfully. How many of us have grown up with grandparents and uncles that have been in war, whether it be the world wars or Vietnam or even more recently in Afghanistan and Iraq? What it does to families, the PTSD, losing loved ones, and, and also the money that we've just totally wasted. And we're watching prices go up, our standards of living go down, the value of the dollar is worth much, much, much less than before these wars. So the purpose of Congress declaring war is we're supposed to, the people, have representatives. And they're supposed to understand their constituencies, whether or not we want to go to war. And they're supposed to put their name on the line. Yes, my people want to go to war. And that reflects one thing. A, it puts their name on the line. And B, it reflects that the public is, at least believes that war is necessary. And most importantly, the public is willing to sacrifice what is ahead. You know, because war is is nasty. And what do we have today? All of that is just thrown out the window. You have a tiny tiny group of people that just go to war and we you know you read about it in social media, you see the videos, and the worst part is Congress is in the same boat. They're probably reading but do they even know what's going on? A few of them are complaining that hey, we didn't declare war in Yemen. Uh you know, so we have all us and our representatives been relegated to the sidelines. We're mere spectators and our lives, our freedom, our money, our liberty is all being put into severe danger by a few people and that is just absolutely wrong.
0: So there's some things here that if you don't listen to everything that I say today, a lot of you are gonna be angry with me because there's my opinion about what should be and my assessment about what is and those are totally different here. My position, and I'm only going to say this once today because I'm tired of saying it, because people don't believe it when I say it. My position is that we need to not be involved in any of this anywhere in the world, the end infinity. I'm against the last war, and I'm already against the next war. The United States needs to have a military that says if you FO with us, you will FA. You will fuck around and find out. But that needs to be where we live our nation, our borders, and our territory, and by the way, we're being invaded right now. I'm just saying at the southern border, and a lot more at the northern border than you know of. And we're ignoring that, so we can go off and play warfare all around the world. Okay. If that's not clear enough with what I'm about to say, and I hear anything from anybody in this audience about how stupid I am or anything, how we need to do this, then I'm not going to listen to you because you're arguing with nothing, and there's no reason for a response. Okay? Alright, now let's go ahead and do this. Let's start off with the legal legal aspects of these strikes against the Houthis. Are they or are they not constitutional? And are they or are they not legal under United States law? Not global law or whatever law your creator says, okay? The answer is they're completely and totally legal under our system of government and our laws. Because what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea, whether you support it or not, is piracy. When an armed vessel encounters another vessel and uses force to seize, attack, or steal from that vessel, it is piracy. And there are two laws that we have had since the 1800s that give the President of the United States, whether I like him or not, whether he shits his pants every day or not, the authority to order the Navy to use force against any entity committing acts of piracy. That's what this is. Whether you want to, but no, they're trying to, I don't care who they're trying to help, it's still piracy. You attack a merchant vessel with another merchant vessel, it is piracy. What these laws stipulate, the president has got to use the Navy to do it. And that's what, I'm not going to say Biden did, his surrogates did. There's no legal case. Now, could Congress pass resolutions to limit action? Yes, should they? Probably. Are they? No. And you know me. I don't spend a lot of time on what should be when it comes to government because it ain't going to happen. And I stick to my sphere of control and a little bit of influence. We have. No, you're not going to. Ch- I don't care if every single one of you run out and call your congressman tomorrow morning. They ain't going to do shit. Let's be honest. Now, uh, the other side of this, the statement that the Houthis can shut down the Strait. I'm sorry. I hate ever saying this about Ron and his folks. Wrong. They cannot. They cannot, they cannot, they can Not if the United States Navy says no. They don't have what is necessary to stand against the force that is the United States Navy, and I'm sorry again, Ron and team, wrong. It is not the United States alone. It is the British Royal Navy. Now, if you want two navies up your ass that are the worst two navies to have up your ass, it's those two. Now, I'm not raw wrong it. I'm not saying it's, a, but I am telling you. The, capa- the combat capability, both offensive and defensive, by the United States Navy is like nothing else on planet Earth. And in a, lot of re- in a lot of ways, it's why we get away with so much of the bullshit that we pull in the world, is our Blue Water Navy. But if you think a bunch of guys running around as speedboats can stand up against a United States carrier group, you are out of your mind. No, they can't shut down the strait. Now, it is a narrow strait, okay? Legally, it's international waters, because it's a navigable strait that's agreed upon worldwide. There's no legal case to be made here unless our Congress takes action, which they're not going to. Now, the other side of this, from the Houthi side, whether you agree or not with this, this is how the world works. If you go screwing around with merchant shipping in the world, especially at a critical place like the strait that leads into the Red Sea that leads to the Suez Canal... You are going to get your ass torched. They knew, and and this is where I think they're right over here on the Ron Paul team. You, they knew that. They knew that, and, and the protesters that five minutes after it happened had printed a sign that says "Hands off Yemen," perfectly like real estate, like you know, like real estate development signs. They obviously paid shills for people like Soros. Again, whether you or I agree with anything or not does not matter. That is what it is. I'm calling balls and strikes here, okay? That's what I always try to do. It doesn't matter whether I think the Yankees should have won. The dude struck out, he lost. That's how it is. And so there's no, there's no, I think we're wasting our time talking about what should be in this environment. Because what should be is the United States should stop interfering around the world, and that ain't going to happen. And I'm saying it. Ron Paul says it, plenty of people said it, saying it won't do it. Until, what is what you're looking at, end stage empire syndrome. This is what every empire does in its end stage. Our empire is going to fall. Now we need to decide, do we want our empire to fall the way the Soviet unions did, which was relatively well organized and peacefully and just accepted its fate? Or do we want to keep provoking nations until we end up on the receiving end of force? Because we live in this freaking illusion that we are untouchable. Because for about 200 years of our existence, we pretty much were. It is not the same world anymore. We can be attacked in a variety of ways by a variety of actors right here at home and have blood and guts and death on our own streets at a time when we are completely morally, ethically, and financially bankrupt. But what's going to happen? Nothing. See, so if you write me, but you don't understand, it's really about the plight of the Palestinians. The Palestinians who absolutely never, ever, ever, ever in the history of all that is controlled the area today that we call Israel. It was never, and if you doubt me, if you're going to email me, and you want me to take you seriously, tell me when they controlled it. And tell me how they controlled it. And be specific. And when you try to do that, it will never happen. Should they control it? I don't know. Maybe if we stop touching things. Maybe if us, frickin' Russians, okay, back then anyway, when this all happened, Europe, and English, if we stopped moving borders around and shit and deciding the way things should be on our own, and chopping stuff up, and telling people how to live, maybe there would be conflict, but maybe that conflict would not be prolonged. Maybe it would suffer itself out. And maybe even if it's not what we wanted, it would be less bad than it is. But we'll never know that until this empire collapses. And the sad thing about that is, you have rising empires right now. China and India, and they are not exactly friendly with each other. And I don't care what about BRICS. BRICS is a trade alliance. It is not a, uh, a treaty about military issues and, 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 and national sovereignty issues. It is a convenience like the convenience of bedfellows type of thing. And we do not need to be further weakened when we are already this weak while you have these alliances rising. And Russia, nobody will tell you this on TV, but if you start digging into it, they are basically rallying most of the African continent behind them right now. World War. Yeah. We will not sit untouched. If there's another world war. So what we need to do is we need to withdraw our support from our own government. Because that's the only way to hasten this collapse. That's what happened in the Soviet Union. Let's go ahead and uh, have one that's a little bit happier. We'll talk about Black Walnut with Jeff Lawton.
4: Hi, Jeff here coming to you from Australia. Midsummer. I've got a question here. Um... In, regard, in relation to black walnut and its allopathic concerns in the U.S. southeast. Um, well, I'm not in the U.S. and I don't deal with black walnut much. But um, I have seen in Oregon um, a giant cherry grown really well under a black walnut. And it was a giant black walnut and a giant cherry. So I'm not sure that you've got that much alleopathy to deal with. Um so, if uh, a cherry, I'd imagine that most of the other um, similar type fruit trees would grow under a black walnut, um, and it's a matter of working out the edge effect in relation to the alleopathy. Is there an edge area that where it becomes um, not relevant? When I'm quoting this situation that I saw, the 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 cherry was. A giant underneath a giant black walnut, and they were, and it was right underneath the canopy, so that kind of surprised me. Um, alleopathy can be broken in relation to uh, fungi, so if you're using the mulch or you're in, increasing the fungal content in the soil, you are going to um, decrease the alleopathy. It's the, the the fungi breaking down the wood at the end of the life of an alleopathic tree or wood chip that allows it to be used in in compost or mulches because the alleopathy is broken by fungal situations so um reduced alleopathy can be created by increased amount of of of, um, fungal networks in the soil which can be stimulated by um fungal dominate dominant compost so there are all those things to look at that's the best i can offer okay
0: So, you know, forgive Jeff, because he just doesn't really work much with uh, black walnut. If if somebody would have asked about pecan, he probably would have had a totally different answer. Maybe just, you know, you understand something about people like Jeff, Lott, and other expert council members. A lot of times they're doing a hundred things, they get this question, so maybe sometimes they don't make a connection that was right there. These are juglon species. And so the alleopathy of a pecan, which I know Jeff uses a lot in his designs in Australia, uh, which is an invasive, you know, foreign tree in Australia, and they grow native here in the United States, uh, that's a juglone species as well. And it's, it's probably the lower concentration of all the juglone species, but Carpathian walnut or English walnut is a juglone species. Butternut is a juglone species. Pecan is a juglone species. And black walnut is a juglone species. Of all of them, the one with the most in the husk around the nut is black walnut, and hence its reputation. Here's the reality about juglone, though. Let's say that I threw a whole bunch of black walnut residue on the ground, and you waited two months and planted into it. Pretty much nothing will happen. It breaks down in the soil incredibly fast. You have to have a living tree with drop to maintain any level of it at all. Here's the next part. The leaves, the roots, the stem, and the bark are very, very low in juglone. Very low. The majority of the juglone is in the husk and the shell of the nut. Okay, So it's only one time a year that there's a lot of that on the ground for long enough for it to not break down. Then there's the bigger issue. When we get into this, we need to understand what type of allopathy we're dealing with. And you could probably mulch a mature tree with black walnut leaves and not notice any problems at all. And the reason is, since it doesn't persist well in the soil, it doesn't go deep into the soil, and it doesn't get down into the main root zone of the tree, and it doesn't really do anything. It is in the league of what we call pre-emergent herbicides. And it has a very simple job to keep competitors down by not letting the seeds get a head start. That's it. That's, that's what it does. Well, you got to ask yourself, why would a plant have alleopathy that would so, uh, reduce the growth of other plants anyway? It's a competitive thing. It's so I can establish my grove here and you can't take over. So something that's already growing is very limited in its effect by it. And I've always marveled at the absolute terrifying fear that homesteaders, permaculturists, etc., gardeners have of black walnut. When I was a kid, my grandparents had this beautiful quarter-acre garden that I used to tend for them. There were four black walnut trees surrounding that garden. Now, they were located so that we really weren't dropping leaves into the garden. But, I mean, anybody would look at it, oh, my God, it's not going to grow. Well, it's been growing there for 40 years, and I'm eight years old, so I trust my grandpa more than you about this tree. Um, it's just not the plague that people think. Now, the last part, and this is really important, it doesn't mean it doesn't have any effect at all. But as you might imagine, species that coexist with black walnut, because this is a native tree that grows wild all by itself, just like an oak tree or something like that. So the species that are from the same region and grow where black walnut grow, some of them have developed complete adaptation to the point where they don't care. And two of the, the, actually three, that, that are in that vein are mulberry, persimmon, and cherry. Now, a lot of the cherry that we have today has been uh, bred and, 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 and developed by man, but it goes back to that common lineage of wild cherries. And specifically a cherry that has a... It's, it's called black cherry. Some people call it choke cherry. And so you'd think it's not good to eat. Black cherries delicious. They're just really small. And they are from and they grow in the same place. And, and, and cherry has almost no impact from, from black walnut and juglone at all. Uh, other than a little bit of a pre-emergent on the seeds. So if the, if, if, the, if the seedling was able to sprout at a time when the juglone was low, that's it. It's off the races. Persimmon, the same. Uh, absolutely persimmon doesn't give a damn and a little bit more sensitivity but not much is mulberry so if you wanted to gild around a juglone species there's your primary things to work with and this will create sort of a biological filter further out if it was even necessary which probably isn't another species that I've personally observed uh, just not given a rip about juglone which has to have developed its resistance to it in some other way or it's just a coincidence is autumn olive And anything in that Eliagnus species, like, um, uh, what is it, Uh, I want to say goji's coming to my head, but that's not what I'm looking for, gumi, um, which is a a, a species very similar to autumn olive. It's an Eliagnus species out of uh, like Crimea, Ukraine, parts of Russia, like down near Sochi uh, and and what have you. Um, They don't give a rip either. I mean, not at all in any way shape or form so those are some things you can work with and that's kind of the why that it is more of a pre-emergent type of uh competition than a long-term persistent issue and the only reason i spent so much extra time on this is because i hear it all the time i hear people talk about cutting down a black walnut because it's too close to whatever don't do that it is one of the most amazing trees in the world and the timber value is extreme And it should be looked at as a financial asset on your property. It should be like, we're only cutting that down because it's the end of its life or because we really need the money. And every year it gets bigger, it's worth more money. It is one of the most valuable timbers in the United States of America. In fact, it might be the most valuable timber outside of like some, you know, burl this or something
2: that. All right, let's hear about stock seasonality from John Pugliano. Well, OTSP. Today I want to talk to you about stock market seasonality. It's always a good idea to be able to develop your skills to be able to identify patterns. And there are definite patterns to the stock market, and that makes sense. I mean, look at what it says in the Old Testament. There's a time and season for all things. So as far as the stock market, this is also a good time to discuss it because right now we're seeing two of the largest seasonal factors take place. And that's we're just coming through the ending of the Santa Claus Rally. And right now, we're experiencing the January effect. Now, before I explain what these are, let me add this caveat. Keep in mind that these are just factors. They're patterns that we can discern, but they don't always occur, and their magnitude can be extremely variable. You know, one of my favorite sayings is is that I can't predict the future. Even when we can identify these patterns, it doesn't mean they're always going to play out the way we think they would. The other thing to keep in mind is that the media is always going to hype things, right? Talking heads need something to talk about. And so even if there isn't a big impact in a particular seasonality effect, you can still count on the media to overhype it. I like to think about seasonality in the stock market the same way I do when I'm planting a garden. I mean, you probably do the same thing. You pull out a farmer's almanac or some other type of historical document that you have it gives a general idea of what your local climate is like. And then knowing that general seasonality, it'll give you an idea to help you plan when you should be planting and harvesting your garden. Now, you have to keep in mind, though, that just because the Farmer's Almanac tells you that it's safe to plant your tomatoes on April 19th, that doesn't mean that a late frost won't come in and kill all your seedlings. Okay? Stock market's the same way. We can look for the seasonality, but it's not always going to be perfect. So as I mentioned, the two largest annual factors are the Santa Claus rally and the January effect. They usually work out to be counterbalancing of each other. If you get a strong rally with the Santa Claus rally, then you'll often see a sell-off in January or vice versa. If you get a big sell-off at the end of the year, it's likely that you could have a very good start to January. As far as the timing of the Santa Claus rally, generally is really strong the last two weeks of the year, but it can begin as early as Thanksgiving or even it occurred much earlier this year. Pretty much the whole last eight to 10 weeks of the year, we saw a consistent rise in the stock market. Now, this year was especially strong because the Federal Reserve came out in November and stated that they were most likely going to be cutting interest rates in 2024 hey, as a side note, shouldn't surprise anybody that the Fed got that information out early ahead of the election. Ah, but that's another topic. In any case, even in years when the Federal Reserve doesn't ease up in the end of the year, we still generally see an increase in stock prices because at the end of the year, money tends to flow into the market. And that's usually because of, you know, tax planning. People are rebalancing their portfolios and trying to optimize tax strategies. There's an end-of-the-year cutoff for when individuals have to make contributions to their 401K plans. And the the end-of-the-year, too, is when companies pay bonuses, offer stock options. And then, of course, institutional investors and hedge funds also use the the end-of-the-year to tweak their portfolios to make it look like they own the hottest stocks of the year. It's called window dressing. Anyways, there's all kinds of shenanigans that go on at the end of the year, and generally it means more money is flowing into the market. And when all that money flows into the market, then naturally you're going to have people having FOMO, fear of missing out, and they jump in, they want to ride the momentum, and it causes prices to go even higher. And all that is exactly what we saw this year. But then January hits. And as I mentioned, you'll usually see the opposite take place with the January effect of however the year ended up. And that makes sense. I mean, think of it in terms of just a simple tax strategy. Let's say that this past year you had some really large capital gains, and maybe you didn't want to pay all those taxes in 2023. So you either didn't sell at all, or you only sold a portion of those gains in 2023. Because think about it, if you sell on December 31st, then your taxes are going to come due just, you know, four months or so later in April. On the other hand, if you hold off in selling and you don't sell until January 1st, then you have about 15 months before you have to pay taxes on those gains. So, hey, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, but you are deferring how long you get to keep that money. So the January effect is very real. It's what we are experiencing right now. Since we did see such a large run up at the end of the year, We're also seeing a great deal of the January effect coming out as buyer's remorse, as a lot of people realize that all that fear of missing out and jumping into the market maybe wasn't the best timing. Especially being hard hit are the small-cap stocks. If you follow my blogs at investablewealth.com or listen to the Wealth Standing Podcast, you know I talk a lot about small-cap stocks. Well, they really ran up and outperformed the last eight weeks or so of 2023. And now people are realizing that, hey, maybe we're not going to get all those rate cuts that people were anticipating the Federal Reserve is going to do. And then all those small cap stocks that were touted as being so cheap. Well, maybe there was a reason that those stocks were selling so cheap just a few months ago. And one of those reasons is that about 38% of the stocks in the small cap Russell 2000 index, well, they're just not profitable. So that reality is setting in, along with all the geopolitical concerns that are carrying over from last year. And so we are seeing a sell-off right now. Hey, and personally, I would like to see a big pullback because I would be looking forward to buying the dip. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions and interests. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast.
0: Now, good stuff from John. Let's move on and hear about growing fodder trees in pots from Nick Ferguson.
2: Hey there,
5: Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and rareplantstore.com here with an expert counsel answer for Stephen. And he says, good evening, sir. I've heard about you through Jack, and I love the idea of tree hay for the rabbits I want to get someday. I live in a town on a small lot in West Texas, my homestead, in air quotes, is a chicken run and several wicking beds there's not a lot of room hey buddy that's still a homestead i'm wondering if there is any fodder tree variety that i can grow in pots i really love to have them but i don't know if there's anywhere i can put them permanently and would probably need to move them around occasionally thank you Stephen. um man i would have no hesitation growing any of the fodder trees in pots for several years or i mean if you plant them in a large enough pot forever you're probably going to eventually need to pull them from the pots and trim the roots to repot and that's just that's simple you just lay it on its side and kind of smack it a little bit and roll it and if you pull on the trunk as you're rolling it it'll it'll pull right out it'll just slide right out then you can stand it up and trim the sides trim the bottoms of the roots um you might want to pull a little bit of the soil off and then repot it pack new soil around it And, you know, on the bottom, you're essentially treating them like bonsai. Uh, You'll never have nearly as much growth as growing in-ground because, I mean, the tree is not going to be able to have roots that go 30 feet in all directions. But, I mean, you can certainly get some really good growth and utility out of any of the three fodder tree species from pot-grown cultivation. And you can even consider growing the trees, like, up against the chicken run as sides to the chicken run and pollarding at the top of the run i've done this with mulberry in the past and just you know trim the trees off at five foot off the ground and that means the trees will provide shade for the run right over the mesh roof and it hid the birds from aerial predators and this let the trees utilize the excess nitrogen in the run and function stack the area really well If you're going to do something like that, I'd suggest using horse panel for the run walls so that they're easier to remove when you want to cycle out the mulch and manure from the run. Basically, you just disconnect it from the sides. You can use something like, uh, um, cable clamps, you know, U bolt clamps, um, for the corners and the top and, uh, and just remove a side and, you can get in there really easy that way uh this could help utilize some of those nutrients in the run like i said as well as give the chickens shade so very nice function stacking there uh those big 20 gallon cattle feed buckets that you mentioned in a follow-up email should be fantastic for those of you who don't know what i'm talking about um they're called like range tubs and uh uh, cattle ranchers will put them out in their pastures and there's gonna be molasses and some extra, uh, nitrogen sources in there and it'll help kinda stretch poor, uh, poor soil and poor, uh, pasture conditions in the winter and they're basically these heavy gauge plastic tubs that, uh, make amazing tree pots. So, if you're gonna do that, I drill a dozen holes or so in the bottom of the pot, pour about an inch of gravel in the bottom of the pot, and then you cover the gravel with wee barrier fabric, and then you fill the rest of it with potting mix and leave about four inches of space between the top of the soil and the rim of the pot so you have room to fill with water and let it trickle down. Some people will pack that soil all the way up to the top edge of the pot. Those pots will never get wet enough. You need to have some freeboard in between the top of the soil and the top of the rim of the pot. You actually want like a couple inches of water sitting on that sucker when you fill it all the way up so it just trickles down and flows through the soil column. Uh, The gravel will help with long term drainage issues and prevent roots from plugging the drainage holes. That's one of those things that if you set it up now, it's a little bit more of a hassle, but in the future you will be glad you did it. I uh, hope that helps some of you listeners out there starting out. You know, this is about the time where I'll get in the gardening bug and that itch like I am. So there's a lot of ways we can solve problems even in small spaces or suboptimal situations. Remember, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. I'm kind of preaching at myself there too. Um, now, I'm going to take a second right now, abuse my friendship with Jack by making this a little bit longer than I need to. And... Uh, I just want to say, Jack, you're a jerk. If it weren't for your encouragement, you pushing me to be better and more years and years ago, it's been a while. And seeing the potential in me, I would not be living such a wonderful life now, running a couple businesses, homesteading, traveling the world, doing what I love doing. It's honestly because of you, brother, that I'm here right now doing what I do, and uh, your example is pushing me to be more and better. So from me to you, thanks for being a friend. For the crowd listening, uh, I'm sharing that because Jack sent me a sneak preview to a video he did for Matt Powers, and just to give credit where credit is due, I had to say it. So thanks, brother, for kicking my ass when needed. I guess I'll sign off as usual and make an awkward stage e- exit. <laughs> I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and rareplantstore.com. Do good things.
0: Whether it's somebody you guys know like Nick Ferguson or whether it is somebody that you'll never hear of because they don't want to be known, um, those are my biggest paydays. And that's the presentation he's talking about. That will air, I think, tomorrow at the Our Future Seminar from, uh, uh, Our, Our, Our Regenerative Future Seminar from Matt Powers. I believe that's Friday that we'll be on the docket. And that's what I said at the end of it. That those are my best paydays, and, and it was a, it was a presentation on how to how to replicate what we've done here, uh, building online community that results in real world action, and, and I I don't know that there's anything that survival podcast and and every, our work has done better than anybody else in the world except that I don't know anyone uh, specifically that's not some kind of mentorship pay me to make you wealthy type thing that's trying to show it off and. This is why I mentioned yesterday, uh, I've got Tom at least kind of dinking around and seeing if we can do it without too much trouble. Uh, Maybe creating a, you know, we had a directory for a while. Uh, Some things went wrong technically, and it kind of fell apart. It was a paid directory to advertise. And what I think I'd like to do is if your business legitimately did come from the Survival Podcast, if we've either inspired you to build it or we've helped you make it better, I'd like to give that to people uh, free. Just the ability to say hey we're this is doing business in the community this is part of the underground network we've built. The problem with that is if you open up something like that, you either have to be uh, manually approving everything uh, or you have to get into a situation where uh, you you're charging as just a a gateway flow control to keep spammers out because if i if I had a directory that just let anybody do it for free, we would end up with every porn site. Uh, every shit coin site, every network marketing uh, opportunity on planet Earth, etc. So there had to be some rules, like it has to be an actual business that you actually own, that you actually built, uh, and you have to you know, be saying that it came out of the community. So my thought was, most people like that are MSB members, so that we would come up with some kind of way to lock away a code uh, to get one free listing, and then maybe it's like 50 bucks if you don't. Have an MSB membership, which is the same price as an MSB membership. And, you know, it would be a one time thing, and then you're in the directory. You don't have to keep paying for it. Uh, but that's the only way I can think of to keep the people that we don't want there out because I don't care how I do it. I guarantee you, every bot and every spammer and every person being paid a dollar an hour in Romania will be in that doorway the second it's available. So I'm thinking about doing something like that. And that's why I would like a place where y'all can all just. No real cost because, again, I think most people that are building successful businesses, that this is part of how they did it, they're already MSB members. So there's no reason to charge them again. But there, that'd be a good flow control. And one more pitch for Nick here before I move on to the next one. Again, he's got these trees for sale. You know, I challenged him with that several years ago. I'm like, you keep talking about this, but you're not doing it. Let's get this shit on the road. And a month later, he's like, I'm ready. I'm going. Let's go. And he's been doing it every year since. And I'm very impressed with what he's done for himself. Uh, He's become a hell of a a consultant and a a source for plants. And uh, you should get get them all you can because they will sell out again. Moving on, let's hear about Crate Training Your Bow Wow from Joe Riles at Fortress Canine.
6: Hello, TSP crew. This is Joel Riles with Canine Academy coming to you for our very first expert counsel question. And today's question comes from Kenneth and basically the situation is they have a six-month-old puppy um, she crates fine during the day and she can hold her bladder however at nighttime they're being woke up every two to three hours to take the puppy out to use the bathroom and they're asking for help on how to train the puppy uh, to hold the bathroom through the night so a six-month-old dog should certainly be able to hold the bathroom through uh, the night at that point point. and one of the questions i would have is um, how long during the day are they holding it. So if they're, um, if you're only keeping them in the crate for a couple of hours through the day, I would test them through the day and uh, and try to build them up to a six to eight hours in the crate, which is a typical uh, sleep time at night and confirm that you don't have any issues there, but you can also do what I'm about to recommend uh, even through the night. So what I do Uh, when my puppies wake me up through the night to use the bathroom, especially if it's every two to three hours and they're at this stage where they're six months old and uh, and apparently have proven that they can hold the bathroom longer during the day, is I wake up and I bump their crate and I tell them, knock it off, quiet, go back to sleep. And then I lay back down. Now, when you first start to do this, it can be a little bit frustrating because they might whine a little bit more. right? Now, one of the things that you can do Uh, If the whining is causing you to wake up is to put the puppy somewhere where you cannot hear them whining So this could be a garage Uh, If it's an environment where this is safe to do it could be the uh, inside of a vehicle at nighttime They're going to be fine if it's too cold or too hot. uh, You may not want to do that But try to put them someplace where you can't hear them whining if that would be beneficial and maybe set an alarm for Halfway through the night, right and then take them out in the middle of the night once and then put them back in their spot and then don't take them out again until the morning see how they do see if they go to the bathroom in the crate um but basically you want to start forcing the dog to hold it longer and you're going to extend this out you know try and make it to like four to six hours and then try to make it all the way through the night all right so essentially what it sounds like is happening here with this pup is that it's probably a little bit lonely at night it's dark it's quiet and it's whining to try and get attention, all right? And so what you have to do is you have to make the attention that it gets during the night not pleasant, so it stops wanting that attention, right? So if you're just waking up and taking the puppy out, it's going, hey, whenever I get lonely in the middle of the night, I just whine. My person comes and takes me out for a little bit, and then I go back in my crate. But essentially, the puppy is training you to wake up every couple of hours and take it out through the night. So you have to start making the initial interaction – unpleasant for the puppy. Now, if you, let's say you go to four to five hours, uh, you force the pup to wait that long and then it goes to the bathroom in the crate. Shorten that time up just a little bit and then start extending that time out, um, you know, maybe 30 minutes a night or something like that. Um, A couple of other things to keep in mind when you're doing this is do not give the puppy water after about say 6.30 in the evening if you're gonna go to bed somewhere between 9 and 10 p.m. And then right before you go to bed, you take the puppy out to use the bathroom make sure that it has a chance to go pee and poop and then put it in the crate for the evening. And, uh, so you, you've set the puppy up where there's a very low likelihood that it should have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, right? Don't just have constant access to water. Uh, it may be drinking a lot right before it goes to bed. And then of course, it's going to have to use the bathroom. So, uh, remove that water plenty of times so that when you take them out for the final bathroom break, uh, they can go use the bathroom, and then they should be good through the evening. And uh, and if you do this consistently, you'll extend that time out until you're getting all the way through the night. If you have any other specific issues or questions, feel free to send those. Uh, for anybody who uh, is having dog training issues and would like to send questions, uh, send those to Jack. And uh, my name, again, is Joel Riles. I'm with the Canine uh, Academy, and I wanted to remind you guys, uh, if you'd like to get access to our dog training videos, check out CanineAcademy.us. Uh, I would recommend if you're going to do that, use the link on Jack's site so that he gets credit for it, and uh, and then we can give him his affiliate uh, credit when he uh, sends people our way. Um, I'd be happy to answer any other questions that you guys have. I hope this is useful. Until next time, train hard and stay safe.
0: So yeah, Joel and I are lockstep on this one to a large degree i will like add one more thing maybe sometimes i just say things differently uh and it it helps more convey an idea joel said half of what i would say here the puppy is training you but the other half of that is and i think this is something we lose sight of as, as as dog owners you are always training your dog I know that doesn't seem to make sense because we think of training as I am teaching the dog to sit. I am teaching the dog to stay. I am teaching the dog to heal. I am teaching the dog, you know, to, 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 uh, to not eat my chickens or whatever. But every single interaction that you have with that dog results in something the dog either likes or doesn't like. And that dog figures out really quick the things that it likes. And it knows that if I do this thing, then this is the result. And if it turns out that something you don't want gets you to do what they want you to do and you do it, not only is the dog training you, you're training the dog that, for instance, in this case, whining brings you to them. You're training the dog when you go to them. Now, I will say this. He uh, he gave you great advice there because if you get to a point where the dog does go to the bathroom in its crate especially a dog of this age or older, we're not talking about like an eight-week-old pup that's just been weaned or something like that, or a 12-week-old pup that, that, that has no, that doesn't have the control yet. An animal that has demonstrated it has control, that defecates or urinates in its crate, was at its limit. It does. This is why crate training works. That dog does not want to pee in its crate. It doesn't want to. If the crate door was open and it loves its crate and it slept in its crate, Uh, With the door open and it it had to pee in the middle of the night and you didn't let it out, it would leave its crate and it would go pee in your house somewhere before it pee in its crate. Just like you, if you were going to pee your pants and you're biting and you couldn't make it to the bathroom, you'd damn sure try to get out of your bed first. Right? So, if you do what he said and you push it and the dog does go, then you know the dog literally had to go. But I think you'll find that this dog has just figured out that when it cries, you come. Because he's right. It should be able to make it through the night. That's just my little addition there. Hell, real quick answer coming up here from Ben Falk on um, why you want to vent a wood stove out the back.
7: This was a follow-up from his
0: interview a couple weeks ago.
7: Hey, Jack and I, Ben Falk with Whole System Design. A question um, about venting the stove out the top of the back. Yeah, it- I think you probably heard that from me because I, I mention a lot to people in my videos and workshops about wood heating that I think there's a lot more advantages to venting out the back of a stove because then you have more space on the top of the stove, which you always is always a good thing, and you have the ability to dry above the stove more easily because the pipe isn't in the way. And my online wood stove intensive workshop I show my favorite drying approach and um, may have a photo of that about that in my book as well but I think it's just more of my online workshops because it's their swing out racks and so the pipes in the way and you also have other ways to dry uh, that are more practical if the pipes out the back than the top even if you don't use the swing out approach. Uh, so yeah, I, I recommend doing that, and I've had to you know full on weld on to you know weld that onto stoves if needed. But it sounds like you have the option. Let's move on.
0: Uh, the next one I have is for me. I'm gonna let you know. I'm gonna video. I'm not gonna live stream this, but I'm gonna video this, and I'll be putting the video out later. If you want to share just this within the Bitcoin community or, or what have you, I just want to start off with how Bitcoin has been treated by government and environmental groups, etc., and specifically the environmental groups that are like uh, surrogates for the state and government, uh, the, the wackos that are gluing themselves to artwork, etc., and not doing any jail time for it, where if you, if you went into one of these art galleries and did half of what they do, you'd probably end up in jail for a year or two at least, but they get away with it because they're being protected. And the uh, entities like the World Economic Forum, and the billionaires that want to control everything, all of them have taken and, and, and come straight at Bitcoin with this whole, you're boiling the oceans right now to the point where, you know, Greenpeace and some other idiots had this big campaign that went absolutely nowhere because it was preposterous uh, just about a year ago called Change the Code. They wanted to change Bitcoin to proof of stake instead of proof of work. So use less energy and save polar bears and all kinds of shit. Well, if you're watching the video version of this, um, and we'll put something up on your screen. I think there's a lot of us that we tend to look at uh gold mining through the lens of like what the nineteen eighties T V shows showed us about gold mining and some dude going down a shaft. That is not how or, or or panning for gold in a stream or something. That is not how gold is mined today. It's done at an industrial scale and it is absolutely an environmental catastrophe it is one of the worst things that is done uh, on, on the planet to obtain a metal that we don't absolutely need it's done by strip mining and if you're watching the video that image that you're looking at right there that particular one happens to be in Russia and it is enormous it is enormous the devastation and there are metric tons of rock that are moved and treated with chemicals and basically destroyed from a standpoint of uh, they become an environmental uh, hazard to get a pound of gold. It's metric tons per pound. It's really tons per ounce th- of this. And there's a massive amount of affluent, these big giant uh, ponds full of this toxic water uh, laden with these chemicals that were used to separate gold from the rock. It's not somebody pulling uh, you know, raw ore out of a shaft mine. It is very, very destructive, and very few people will tell you the truth about it. Here's uh, an article from somebody called The Conservation, those listening to the audio podcast. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes today. Uh, the headline being, gold mining is one of the world's most destructive and unnecessary industries, and here's how to end it. And this is not my quest to end gold mining. I'm just pointing out how toxic this shit is. If you're looking at the image in this article, you see that truck driving on that road, and you see that stair-step uh, way that they do these, these mines, and it gives you some scale, and you need to understand how big that truck is. That's a truck we, I don't know what they're called officially. We used to call them yukes, uh, where I grew up, where strip mining coal was done exactly the same way. So I've seen what this does. It is horrifically environmentally destructive. But I'm not here to save the environment today. I'm here just to ask a simple question: If the world economic and they also say we got to get off fossil fuels, right? This is as bad for the environment as drilling for oil times five. This is all. So we got to get rid of fossil fuels. Got to get rid of Bitcoin because we're gonna boil the oceans. But who's the number one holder? You know, if you make a list, top three holders of gold. In the world, nation states—I'll tell you, Bitcoin's bad. Banks—and I'll tell you, Bitcoin's bad. And and and, and billionaires—I'll tell you, Bitcoin's bad. These groups like these consortiums, like the World Economic Forum, oh, Bitcoin's wall in the ocean. You ain't gold? Oh yeah, okay,
7: right.
0: and had no problem with it. Now, if we did stop mining gold, you think about this: if you hold a lot of gold, and they announce tomorrow gold mining is banned, we have to work with what we have. We have enough gold, we would never need another drop of it out of the ground, or the, the, the small amounts that are collected by pan, uh, you know, gold panners and stuff like that would, be, would work. You don't need to do this. Uh, from an industrial standpoint, there's, there's some call for gold, but not that. there's plenty of it. we go a thousand years, never taken ounce out of the ground, we have all we need, and then some. And if you were holding gold, if you were Peter Schiff, well, you, would, you, you should be for this. You've created a hard cap. You've created an artificial scarcity beyond the, uh, the, the natural scarcity, right? So the value of all the gold in holding would go up. So the people who would most benefit from stopping gold mining are not worried about stopping gold mining in, in spite of the environment. And it's environmentally hazardous. So why? I know many of you have snapped to the fact that these people do not care about the environment at all. Uh, they wouldn't be doing so many things that they do on a daily basis if they actually compare, concerned about the environment. Probably mainstream agriculture, conventional agriculture, is probably the biggest environmental polluter on the planet. It also has the largest carbon footprint if you care about that. They don't care about that. That doesn't bother them at all, you know. And I'm not talking about ranchers growing cattle. Growing cattle, not in cafo's, is the most environmentally form. They don't like that either. It's a commonality here what they don't like. They don't like things that they can't control. And they don't like things they can't control because it scares them. And that's probably something that no one's ever told you before, at least in this angle. The reason you should own Bitcoin is because your government and the people that you don't like and the people that you feel are your enemy are afraid of it. If they weren't afraid of it, they wouldn't do this shit. Why would you single out this thing to be an environmental catastrophe and put all this apparatus behind FUD around this, if you cared about the environment at all, when all these other things are worse, how much worse are they? I'm glad you asked. Let's give you some perspective because there's a lot of people that think, well, well, Bitcoin, it does use as, many, as much electricity as Argentina. No, it does not. That's a lie. When we actually look at the, the power uh, consumption of the Bitcoin mining network, I'll give you two things that use more power annually than the Bitcoin mining network does. And they're just limited to the United States of America. So we've got a global network, and this is compared to just one country's use of clothing dryers. Your dryer is doing more to harm the environment if you think using electricity is bad than the entire Bitcoin network. Your dryer network in the United States, all the dryers. Well, you might think, well, okay, you know, they use heat and that's kind of expensive and and they you were, know, People dry their clothes year-round, well, they should or not, all right, well, maybe. How about Christmas lights? Christmas lights, on average, are up for five to six weeks in the United States. The U.S. energy use from Christmas lights exceeds the energy use of the Bitcoin network. This is all a lie, folks. It's all bullshit. It's always been bullshit. It always will be bullshit. It's a lie. So, again, why would you single this thing out? because they're afraid of it because it is exactly what we say it is is immutable uncensorable hard money and if you have made your entire living by control manipulation and gain from a fiat economy that's been with us so long no living person on planet earth right now has ever lived in a true hard money economy well, Jack, we had a hard money economy till 1971. No, that's when we went further off the deep end. We have been in a, 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 a fiat economy solidly since 1933. Now, you may go find me somebody that was alive in 1933, but they didn't understand what was going on. Or 32, I guess you would say. They didn't understand what was going on. They had to be a little bitty kid. They weren't running a business, etc. So all the people who are successful in the fiat world have only ever known the fiat world, and the people that taught them only knew the fiat world, and the, the people that taught them only knew the fiat world. And as the fiat world became more fiat, because it did through a series of events, really it starts 1913 here in the United States, then 1933, then 1964, then 1971, leading us to where we are now. They are afraid that everything that they have will die if Bitcoin is seen for what it is by enough people. Now, I'm telling you they're afraid of it. And if they weren't afraid of it, they wouldn't do anything right now. You wouldn't have Pocahontas Warren in the Senate trying to ban cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as a whole. They don't give a shit about cryptocurrency, guys. They really don't. Because they know that there's only going to be one king here. They're not worried about this little side industry. But all of a sudden, Bitcoin's sitting there in one of the top ten commodity asset networks on planet Earth. By the end of this year, the market cap of Bitcoin globally will exceed the market cap of silver. It may very well be number three behind like Apple and gold. And market cap, and I showed that earlier so I'm not going to show it again today, but that's reality that's basic math and projection and there's a point where you can't that's why they had to eventually approve the ETF too much too much market force and too much too much ridiculous bullshit on their end they and and they did something when they did that they pulled the pin on a grenade. now here's the thing everybody thinks when you pull a pin on a grenade about five seconds poof, that's how grenades usually work. That fuse can be a year-long fuse if you want it to be, and it is. It is at least a multi-month, and it's probably a multi-year fuse before you see it fully explode. Now, but it, the pin's pulled and it can't go back in. It's too late. It's done happening. You got some holdouts. Uh, one of the one of the big like retirement planning firms with a lot of like banned Bitcoin ETFs right away. Go ahead. Uh, I'm not sure who it is. Van Eck actually has one, so it's Van Somebody has has base the one of the other. Uh, I can't think of it. It's Just out of my, ma- you know, we're not going to let any of our people to protect them. All you're going to do is take your customers, and they're going to start leaving, and then you're going to say, "Okay, we were wrong. I'm sorry." That's what's going to happen. But they're terrified of it. So I would ask you. If you start looking at all the things that they're attacking, don't they all seem like things that they're afraid of or they're inconvenient for them because they allow you to be self-sufficient independent of them? They hate gas stoves. You know why? If you cook on electricity, I have control. I can just shut off your power. If you have a gas stove and a 1,000-gallon propane tank, well, that's not so easy for me to take away for, from you, is it? They don't like guns because they let us defend ourselves, so we need them less. So they're afraid of that. They don't like people producing food for themselves naturally. They have all these regulations from the federal level down to local levels. It's all part of Agenda 2030 that try to to squish and kill off small scale producers. If you if you want to know more about that, check out Baker's Green Acres, Mark Baker. and and what the government tried to do to him over freaking pigs so this is all obvious but I would just ask you if the government is afraid of you having something isn't it something that you should probably have if no one's ever put it to you that way they have now and I suggest if you do not have any Bitcoin you start stacking soon for a variety of reasons but if that's the one that gets you motivated then that's the one that gets you motivated And with that, guys, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, Take my my words there about Bitcoin to heart. If your government doesn't want you to have something, it's probably something that you should have. With that, uh, I had a pretty good week with you all this week. We'll have a Friday flashback tomorrow. I want to remind you again. Uh, Self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty. That's what we're all about. It's always what we've been about since day one. And I believe that being able to control your own destiny is the way to do that. We teach a variety of ways to do that from basic preparedness Uh, That, of course, is incredibly important if you're going to be self-sufficient to actually be prepared to do without. We talk about entrepreneurism because running your own business is the greatest step towards freedom that you can have in the world today. It really is. There's, There's probably not a step toward freedom that you can take more than running your own business. We talk about investing and things like that. And Bitcoin is just a piece of that for me. I'm not one of these people like... You know, real estate's a shit corner. Some stupid shit. Some of these people say like it's like they drank their old Kool-Aid to the point where they can't think straight anymore. Well, where do you live? I live in a house. Okay, so get rid of your house. You see what I mean? How dumb that is. So we teach investing, and the reason we talk about Bitcoin probably more than other investments because it's the best investment. That's one thing to write about. It is the best investment there is right now. It's the hardest money man has ever created. It's the most secure network man has ever created. But we also talk about growing food, don't we? We talk about growing food all the time. So I want to remind you again about the Simplified Bioreactor Composting Course. You learn how to make this compost, and you have taken on the role of using biology instead of chemistry to grow your food and improve your property. And that is something no one will ever be able to take away from you, and I think it's priced very well. The other thing I want to let you guys know about today, is, always, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the Victor Knox 6-inch semi-stiff boning knife. And I sold a lot of these along with the 8-inch breaking knives last year, both from Victor Knox. But I sold so many of the the boning knives, and this is probably the one that is more beneficial to more people than the larger breaking knife. Because this is a knife you'll reach when you're breaking down a big primal, but it's also a knife you'll reach for when you're doing something like filleting a fish or boning out a chicken thigh. It's just that good. But it is probably also the knife used by more professional meat cutters than any other knife in the country. I even had several people that went to school to learn how to cut meat. Say, you know, 20 years ago when I went to school, that was one of the knives they gave me as part of my tuition. That's how because it's that good and they're not expensive. They're like 25 bucks on sale right now. But, you know how much they were 2 weeks ago? They were $45. Why? That's more than retail. Because I sold so damn many of them off of of Amazon last year that they were almost out of stock. And if you're a vendor selling on Amazon and you go to stock of zero, you lose all of the place that you've gained in the listings and rankings. So one of the tactics people will take is as their inventory dwindles, they'll keep raising their price to where if they have one or two left, they might even do something like, raise their price to something ridiculous like a thousand dollars but that didn't happen but yeah they were selling for 45 dollars just last week the last time that i brought them around was october 4th last year that's how and i will not recommend something that's overpriced i won't do it well they must have got a truckload in or something because i got a thing today uh they knocked them down about 25 bucks that's 19 percent off retail If you didn't get one of them last year and if you are, you know, you're running your own kitchen there at home and you you cut your meat and you want to be able to do the stuff that we talk about to save money and you just want a great performing knife, you want this. Now, in the write-up on it today, if you go look at it, there's a link to the breaking knife. And with those two knives, there's nothing you can buy in a grocery or a restaurant warehouse or like a Costco business center that you can't break down with just those two knives. Nothing. I mean it's they're that that it's a full you know, that plus a good sharpening steel is all you need. But this is again, this is the one that everything from filleting a fish to breaking down something like a chuck roll to to just parting out a chicken. It's all you need and it is a fantastic, fantastic performance knife. Check them out today again. The Victor Knox Six-inch, semi-stiff boning knife. People have asked me, like, there's other options where, like, it's a more flexible blade or a stiffer blade. Why this one? Because it's the most universal. There's nothing I've ever needed to do where I'm like, gee, I wish this blade was stiffer. And there's nothing I've ever done where I'm like, it's not got enough flex in it. So it's kind of the, and it is, again, if you talk to meat cutters, it's the knife they probably have in their hand more than any other knife. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, check out that bioreactor composting course if you haven't done so yet. Consider becoming an MSB member. Enjoy your Friday flashback, and I'll see you Monday.
6: We'll do it all over run again. You out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the
3: American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay